This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levoque, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about sleep and neurodivergence. So we know that issues with sleep are actually much more common in the neurodivergent population than they are in neurotypicals. Um, and we're going to go through some reasons why that is today and kind of better understand, you know, what's going on in sleep cycles, what might be contributing to sleep issues um, in the neurodivergent population and what we can actually do about it as well, how we actually assess that and, and treat that. So I thought it might be helpful though to start with a little bit of a discussion around what healthy sleep actually looks like. So most people would be aware that we actually cycle through multiple sleep stages uh, during the night. Um, and kind of briefly put, we've got light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. So our light sleep can be sectioned into a couple of different levels or stages of light sleep. But just for brevity's sake today, um, we'll just talk about kind of light, deep, and our REM sleep. So our REM sleep is when we're dreaming. And that usually occurs in the early part of the morning, so in the later stages of our sleep for adults. Our deep sleep is our restorative sleep. So that does things like rebooting our immune system, um, helping us recover from stress during the day, really restoring our body to optimal functioning. Our REM sleep, we know, is really important for memory consolidation, emotional processing. Um, it helps us kind of work through and sift through the experiences uh, that we've had during the day. So if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about what all the different stages of our sleep do and what sleep actually does for our well-being, a book I would really recommend is called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, a little bit depressing if you're currently in a stage of life where you don't get much sleep, um, but also motivating, I think. So what we know, though, is all the different stages of our sleep do different things. Um, and as I said, you know, we go through these different cycles throughout the night. So earlier in the night, we tend to get our deep sleep and later in the night, we tend to get our REM sleep. Kids tend to move into this more adult-like sleep cycle actually around the ages of about four and five, so where they're starting to get their deep sleep earlier in their sleep stage and their REM sleep later on. Toddlers will have a lot more deep sleep for obvious reasons and infants are pretty much all deep sleep. So Michelle, are you saying that the best sleep of our life is when we're babies? I'm so sorry. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of times when we talk about sleep, the question of how much sleep we should be getting comes up. And, you know, most people have heard this idea that we need to get eight hours sleep a night. And for the most part, that is true. There's been lots of research that's shown that the majority of people need around eight hours sleep to be able to be functioning at their best when they assess memory function, emotional control, all these different kind of metrics of our functioning as a human. People who get less sleep tend to do worse than people who get more sleep. Mm -hmm. So that's just sort of a general metric. 
But obviously within that, there are differences in how much sleep each individual needs. So some people need slightly less sleep than that to function at their best, and some people need slightly more sleep. And the older that we get, actually the less sleep that we tend to get. Yeah, I think it's it's obviously ideal to, you know, get good quality of sleep. Um, but sometimes when working with people who do have chronic insomnia, the focus does shift away from trying to attain, you know, oh, I'm going to get eight hours to really looking at what is the minimum amount of sleep that does not impair your functioning the next day or does not cause you distress, basically. Um, So sometimes when helping people to work on their sleeping patterns, what we tend to focus on is maybe our goal is to get six hours of sleep or 6.5 hours, but to make it a good quality of sleep during that time. So it's really just trying to get what you can, um, particularly if you have a different nervous system, um, a neurodivergent brain. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in shifting the focus away from fixating on how many hours sleep a night that you're getting. You know, I think every single person on the planet has had an experience where you've been lying awake in bed and you look at the clock and you think, if I fall asleep now, I'm going to get six hours sleep now. I'm going to get five hours sleep, right? And that anxiety around, Mm. oh my God, I'm not going to get enough sleep. And the hour metric um, can actually make it a lot more difficult for you to fall asleep. So yes, I think obviously getting a good night's sleep for you or getting, you know, enough sleep for you and your body is ideal and is the goal. Um, But that's not always possible. What was really interesting is there's a study done on exactly what we're talking about now. How many hours does an individual need uh, of sleep to be able to function appropriately? And what they actually found is that the figure of eight hours is often eight hours needed in bed. If you are getting between six to eight hours of sleep, so that's your actual sleep time, then great. Most people can function okay on that. Now, that's not to say that that's, you know, what's going to work adequately for you. You might be someone who genuinely needs more sleep time than that. But what this study found is that what you should be aiming for is eight to eight and a half hours in bed. And I think it's important not to focus on as well fixating on how many times you've woken up in the night um, because it is actually normal to wake during the night. Um, People who don't have insomnia or sleeping issues do that and it's really normal. And um, there's some research that shows particularly in the stages where you're trying to get to sleep or you're in those phases of the cycle of sleep where it's light sleep that you may not actually even realize that you're asleep when you're asleep. So sometimes people can actually find it hard to accurately gauge how much sleep they've actually had because they've slept more than they thought. Mm, That's such an awesome point and I think so important. Like We're actually terrible at guessing how long we've been asleep for. And again, another experience I think everyone can relate to is feeling like, oh my God, I didn't sleep at all last night. Um, when actually you did, you actually slept a lot more than you thought you did. And, you know, some sleep is better than no sleep. Um, and similarly, rest is better than no rest. Even if you're just lying in bed and you're resting and you're in a super light sleep, 
that's still helpful. So, you know, I think the anxiety around sleep is a massive contributor or exacerbator of sleep issues. The other thing there too is, you know, just as you were saying, Monique, it's really normal to wake a lot during the night. Mostly we wake a lot after our, we've gone through a REM cycle. What tends to happen for particularly individuals with ADHD is they tend to be very vivid dreamers. So it's actually more likely for individuals with ADHD to wake after their REM sleep because their brain is so active and so their dreams are so vivid. So, you know, a lot of people with ADHD might think, oh my God, I wake up all the time during the night. I don't get quality sleep, but that might just be normal for your sleep cycles and your brain. It's just that you're having a more, um, I guess, active wake than someone who is having a less active wake, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So there have been some studies on the effects of severe sleep deprivation. In the 1960s, they did studies where they got participants who had volunteered for this study to stay awake for a lot longer than, you know, what you normally would be awake and just to see and observe what were the effects. And some of these participants actually stayed awake for like three or four days. Um, mm. And towards the end of that, one of the side effects was actually psychosis um, and a oh bunch of God. other like pretty bad side effects. So, yeah. 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 And I mean, it's still to this day, I don't think we have a full and complete understanding of what exactly sleep does for our bodies. But what we do know is that it's absolutely essential. So we're going to chat a little bit now about what can go wrong in sleep and in particular, you know, sleep in neurodivergence. And I think probably the first thing to touch on is just to better understand what insomnia is, because I know a lot of people, you know, as is the case for lots of things, might think, okay, I'm, I'm having a really hard time sleeping. Am I an insomniac? So Monique, can you actually just take us through what being an insomniac means and, and what the definition is? Yeah, I think it's important to talk about like what is the official definition to kind of look at that line between what's something that might be kind of an occasional issue or something that you're experiencing because of stress or a life transition versus an actual um, like medical issue or medical problem. So I think the first thing to look at with insomnia is there is a bunch of different causes for insomnia. Um, it can be quite genetic. So it's good to think about, do you have like a family history of people that have struggled with insomnia? There can be environmental factors. There can be behavioral patterns that get entrenched and anxiety about sleep. And also if you have other mental health conditions um, like depression or anxiety, they can play a role in developing and maintaining insomnia as well. But when we actually look at what is the diagnostic criteria, basically the criteria is a predominant complaint of dissatisfaction with your sleep quality or quantity, and it has to be associated with having difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, so frequent wake waking throughout the night, um, and early morning wakening without the ability to return to sleep. So those are the three things that you have to have at least one or more of those. The second criteria is that the sleep disturbance has to cause clinically significant distress or impairment in your functioning. It needs to occur at least three nights a week 
and normally present for at least three months. So it's mm-hmm. like going, how mm-hmm. often are you having this problem and for like how long? Yeah. yeah. And, and what's the functional impact of it as well? Yeah. Yep. And there's some other criteria too that I think would make it hard if you have um, like other sleep issues. So part of the criteria is you don't want it to be like better explained by medication that you're taking or having another sleep condition like um, narcolepsy or sleep apnea or something like that. So it's really trying to investigate like what is actually the cause of this um, and it's something separate to those other things. And Monique, is there any other really common sleep disorders or sleep issues that you see in your clients who are neurodiverse? Yeah. So, a lot of my clients who are neurodivergent will have sleep concerns. Quite a lot of them will have things like restless leg syndrome, um, sleep apnea, delayed sleep phase disorder. So, that's like a circadian rhythm disorder. They'll also have narcolepsy and a lot do struggle with insomnia. So, in the research of like looking at the link between neurodiversity and sleep issues and insomnia, um, there were some interesting studies and prevalence rates that we found. So, there was a really interesting study done in 2021 on autism in adulthood which examined sleep quality from adolescence to old age, and it had 297 participants. Problematic sleep was found in 64% of the autistic adults who participated, and what they found in the study was the onset of sleep took a lot longer than the neurotypical adults. So on average, it took about 40 minutes to fall asleep for the autistic adults and autistic women were more likely to have poor quality of sleep than autistic men. That's really interesting that autistic women were more likely to have sleep issues than autistic men. And, you know, as you were saying earlier, Monique, there's so many different things that can contribute to sleep issues. So some of the things that the authors of this study suggested might be the reason why women, autistic women are having more sleep issues than autistic men is things to do with an increased risk of anxiety and depression in autistic women. So we know that autistic women are actually more likely than autistic men to have mental health issues. And also they made the point that women in middle age in general are actually more likely to have sleep issues and particularly women going through menopause. So that's another factor, you know, increasing the likelihood of sleep problems in the autistic female population. So we've talked about autism and sleep issues. The next thing I want to talk about is ADHD and sleep. I think there is a common misconception that, oh, you know, when you go to sleep at night, your ADHD just turns off and you just have a great night's sleep. And then it turns on again when you wake up the next morning and, you know, you have all of the ADHD, you know, traits and everything. They just magically turn on again. However, ADHD does not actually just magically stop at nighttime. Oh, my God. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) And the stats show that about four out of five adults with ADHD experience sleeping problems, ranging from insomnia to other secondary sleep conditions. And it's important that doctors are starting to realize the importance of treating sleeping issues and the impact that this can have on both ADHD symptoms and also quality of life um, for people who are ADHDers. 
And it's interesting because I think for all neurodivergent people, sleep issues are really a complex interplay between biological factors, um, you know, sleep cycle issues, which we'll talk about in a moment, and behavioral issues as well, behavioral factors, mental health factors. So for example, you know, if you're an ADHDR, you're probably more likely to have delayed sleep onset, meaning that your natural sort of body circadian rhythm, um, you want to go to sleep later, or you have a harder time with that sleep onset with melatonin production. Then when we think about how that might manifest, if you're having a really hard time getting to sleep and you're an ADHD out, you might think, oh, well, I'm just going to do this other thing then. I'm just going to do, you know, start playing my game or I'm going to start on this activity or I'm going to do this thing. And then because you're actively engaged in something, you're not resting, you're not trying to get to sleep. So it's sort of this interplay between the biological and the behavioral. And I think that's why sleep or treating sleep issues is so complicated because it really never is one thing. Um, and really understanding, you know, what are all the different causes for sleep issues, what's driving sleep issues is super essential to making any headway in improving our sleep. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, there needs to be greater recognition of the link between neurodiversity and sleep problems. Mm -hmm. So if someone's walking into their psychologist, their GP or a sleep clinic for insomnia, they really do need to be screened for ADHD or autism. And we really need people who can specialize in both in yeah. sleep, mental health, um, neurodiversity. Um, you really do need to be like a jack of all trades um, mm. to be able to provide a good service, I think, to people who are neurodiverse. And the other thing too is that autism and ADHD are quite comorbid. So if someone's coming in with sleep problems and they have ADHD, it's also important to screen them for autism as well. Some of the research also shows that for ADHD, people are more likely to experience shorter sleep time and problems falling asleep and staying asleep as they start puberty. And there is a higher risk of developing a sleep disorder if you have ADHD. Nightmares are also more common in children with ADHD, especially those with insomnia and sleep problems in ADHD also tend to increase with age. So even if you have the inattentive type of ADHD, you might still have that hyperactive mind and experience racing thoughts at night when you're trying to go to sleep or a burst of energy at night that interferes with sleeping. Um, and a lot of people tend to like to stay awake at night because they're free of those distractions during the day or they're free from work or their kids are sleeping. So then they can do what they want to do. Um, so this actually makes sleeping difficult. Sleep problems in ADHD also appear to differ depending on the type of ADHD. So there was a study that found that people who had predominantly inattentive symptoms were more likely to have a later bedtime, while those with more hyperactive traits were more likely to suffer from insomnia. So those with combined type experienced both poor sleep quality and a later bedtime. Some of the research also showed that with ADHD, you have a higher incidence of delayed sleep phase disorder, which basically is your circadian rhythm clock is kind of out of whack with what the modern Western colonial capitalist society wants you to do, which is to wake up at six or seven in the morning, go to work at nine, work all day till five, come home, have a bit of leisure, and then go to bed at, you know, like 10 o'clock at night. 
However, with delayed sleep phase disorder, um, people tend to really not feel those sleepy cues from their body until the early hours of the morning. So their natural um, circadian rhythm is to actually sleep through the day and be awake at night. And what kind of makes it, I guess, a you know, quote, disorder, is that no matter how much they try to wake up, they'll sleep through their alarms, like they're extremely drowsy and they can't just kind of spring up out of bed like everybody else. So it is actually, you know, like a medical condition. And some of the treatments for delayed sleep phase disorder are things like stimulant medications, um, which is interesting given, you know, the link between ADHD and delayed sleep phase. Um, but also a UV lamp um, or sun exposure. So kind of getting up at the time that you can get up and exposing yourself to the sunlight or a UV lamp to kind of try and reset that circadian rhythm. Some of the other common um, like comorbidities with ADHD are actually like sleep disordered breathing. Um, So that includes snoring and sleep apnea, and it can affect up to one third of people with ADHD and restless leg syndrome, which is a neurological condition where people have tingling sensations in the legs um, and periodic like movement of their legs, which make it hard to fall asleep. And some of the stats actually show it occurs in almost 50% of people with ADHD. And both kids and adults with ADHD and restless legs appear to spend longer in the stage one light sleep, which is not as restorative. Um, So they can't get down into that deeper, more restorative Mm. sleep. So it sounds like there's so many possible issues uh, that could go wrong in the sleep of people who are neurodivergent. What I'm getting from everything that you just said, Monique, is it's really hard to get a good night's sleep if you're neurodivergent. Yeah, I totally just info dumped all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's have a bit of a think about why that might be the case. And we've already touched a bit on the complexity of the issues surrounding sleep and factors that can impact sleep and that typically it's not one thing. We'll have a little bit of a chat today about some biological things that can be going on and also some behavioral things that can impact, you know, sleep issues and then some kind of mental health, emotional factors as well. And as we go through this, we'll also see that it can be quite tricky to rectify our sleep issues because all of these things tend to compound each other. You know, they sort of exacerbate each other in various ways, but we're really not trying to be doomsayers here. And I think once you're aware of what the disparate elements are in in your sleep issues, even if it's sort of like, well, I can't address all of those things. If you could even pick out one or two things that might improve your sleep, then that's going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't feel overwhelmed as we go through all of this stuff and you think, oh my God, all of these things are impacting my sleep. Just think about which of these things that we're talking about would have the most functional impact for you to change or to work on or to adapt in some way and just do that one thing. Yeah, knowledge, you know, is power. And for me personally, I'd rather know all the facts and all the statistics and have all the information there so then I can make choices um, about like what suits me um, and and what's going to help me, um, you know, live my best life. Yeah. So let's start off with the biological. There's a couple of factors that impact our sleep cycles. 
And the two main things that we're going to talk about today are our HPA axis. So that stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. You don't have to remember that. Um, and we're also going to talk about our melatonin cycles. So Monique has already touched on a little bit around, you know, sleep cycles, sleep phases, but we'll go into a little bit more uh, detail with that as well. So our HPA axis is a circuit that basically regulates our stress and our arousal state. So the HPA axis does a lot of things, but for our purposes today, it really helps to regulate cortisol. So cortisol is a stress hormone, or better put, it's an arousal hormone. So it helps us to feel not sexually aroused, um, but (laughs) aroused within our body. So kind of alert, heightened. Um, And when you think about, you know, what anxiety is and, you know, stress at a really biological level, it essentially just is a high state of alertness and a high state of arousal. So cortisol is really important because if we didn't have any cortisol, it would be really, really hard to do anything. We would be in, you know, for regular listeners of the podcast, our blue zone regulation state. We would be under aroused. So our cortisol actually follows uh, a rhythm in the same way that our sleep cycles follow a rhythm. So our cortisol rhythm is actually a really good marker of our HPA regulation in general. So ideally, our cortisol is at its highest in the morning and then it falls in the evening. And actually what we find in autistic individuals is that they actually have a diminished reduction of the expected fall of cortisol at nighttime. So what that means is that their cortisol is remaining high into the evening. So, you know, with high cortisol, high arousal state, that obviously makes it tricky at a biological level to feel rested, to feel relaxed, to be entering into sort of a calm state. So we've got that one issue there. So the cortisol is kind of remaining high. And, you know, when we think about why that might be, there's not really clear evidence or clear research on a direct mechanism. You know, we don't know the exact reason. But what I would hypothesize is that, you know, we know that individuals on the spectrum tend to be more alert and they tend to be more prone to anxiety in general. So what I would hypothesize there is that we have a much more alert, aroused HPA axis in general. Um, and that's kind of contributing to this reduction in the fall of cortisol at nighttime. And also what researchers have found is that individuals in the autism spectrum tend to have a similar cortisol profile to individuals who have diagnosed insomnia. The other possible contributor there to the higher level of cortisol production in autism can also be environmental factors. So we know that individuals on the autism spectrum often are not having their sensory needs met during the day. Um, If you're in a situation that is overstimulating or understimulating, and this is regardless of neurodiversity status, you know, every human on the planet, if you're under or overstimulated, that's stressful. So that potentially is contributing to just a general state of higher cortisol production. The other compound that's really important when we're thinking about sleep and restfulness is melatonin. So melatonin is a compound that gets released later in the day and it basically signals to our brain that it's time to start winding down for sleep. It's time to start initiating our, you know, sleep onset. The trigger for melatonin release is light through our eyeballs. 
So what happens typically is later on in the evening, uh, our brain gets a signal that, okay, it's starting to be nighttime and it's time to go to sleep. So it starts to secrete melatonin. Um, This usually happens at about half an hour to an hour and a half before our ideal kind of sleep onset and we start to get that sort of sleepiness feeling. Really interestingly though, and you know, not always at the level of sleep phase disorder where, you know, as you're explaining, Monique, this, these are people who, uh, you know, only start to feel sleepy really in the wee hours of the morning. But it's actually really normal for people to have different times that they start to feel sleepy. So we know, for example, that teenagers tend to have a delayed sleep onset. Um, and, you know, another example of the way that society is not set up to actually work with our brains, school starts at what, like 8 a.m., 9 a.m.? Most teenagers would prefer if school started at 10 or 11 because they want to go to sleep later and they want to wake up later. And, you know, unfortunately, if we are going against our body's natural rhythm, it's really, really hard to wake up at a time that our body doesn't want us to wake up. And it's almost impossible to fall asleep at a time when our body doesn't want us to fall asleep. So we know, you know, for teens, that's a normal part of the adolescent developmental phase, but also for individuals with ADHD and individuals on the autism spectrum, they tend to have differences in their sleep phase. So even if you're not at a level that you think, okay, well, I don't have sleep phase disorder, it could be that your natural body clock is secreting melatonin later on in the night and naturally wants you to fall asleep later. And that's going to be the time that's going to work best for you. Yeah, and I think um, that whole thing about being an early bird or a night owl, there is truth in that um, because when you're looking at sleep psychology and sleep science, there is, you know, what's called an evening phenotype and a morning phenotype. Um, And it's like what you're saying, actually a genetically um, set preference for your brain in when it secretes the melatonin. So when we think about how melatonin and cortisol interact, particularly for individuals who are neurodivergent, firstly, we're seeing in the autism population, higher cortisol production, you know, in that late evening, late afternoon sort of phase. And if we're also seeing reduced melatonin production in that phase of the day, it's going to make it really, really difficult to fall asleep. And actually, some studies have found that up to about 65% of people on the spectrum have low natural melatonin. So that sort of natural balance between cortisol and melatonin is thrown out. Whether something's dysfunctional or disordered or problematic for you really depends on the environmental expectations. Unfortunately, most people have to get up most days of the week and go to work at a certain time. So, you know, trying to figure out ways that we can make your natural sleep cycle work for you is always going to be best. Um, But it is just frustrating sometimes when the environmental expectations or the bounds of what you have to do in your life are a bit of a mismatch with how your body naturally wants to sleep and regulate. You know, some people find it better to have a nap in the afternoon and have less kind of um, condensed sleep period during the night. Unless you live in Spain, though, (laughs) that's probably going to be really hard to action in Western society. Uh, But I think, you know, the first step is always about what works best for me and then how can I 
tailor that or adapt that to the life I live or, you know, the country that I live in or the situation that I'm in. But it always has to start with an understanding of what does work best for you. And ideally, it's about tailoring your environment to suit your body. Um, So like a lot of people will work shift work or do night work um, or have the flexibility or the privilege to be able to do flexible work. Um, But not everyone, you know, has that privilege or choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ideally, you know, yep, we would tailor our environment. We would make our life work perfectly for us. Um, That's not always an option for people, particularly if you've got small children or you've got lots of responsibilities or changing a work schedule is just not an option for you. I really don't want you to think that there's nothing that you can do that, okay, well, your life is just created in a way that is not going to suit you. There's always something you can do. So lots of people might have heard of melatonin pills that you can get from your GP. Um, And these basically are a synthetic compound melatonin that might compensate for a naturally low melatonin secretion. Something that's really, really important to mention, though, is that melatonin is actually an incredibly complex compound and it interacts with lots of different things. So, you know, not everyone who is on the spectrum has low melatonin. Not everyone with low melatonin benefits from melatonin pills. Um, That's absolutely, I think, an option. And it's something if you're struggling with sleep onset that it would be worth chatting with your doctor about. But I think jumping onto the melatonin train and just thinking, okay, well, I can't get to sleep, so I need to take a melatonin pill, that's not always going to be the answer. So I think it can be really, really helpful. And I think, Monique, you you take melatonin, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, it helps my quality of sleep, particularly if I'm stressed or going mm. through like a period of transition. I'll I'll use it then, um, but I'll take breaks from it. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense with, I guess, just the interaction between melatonin and cortisol. You know, it sounds like in periods where uh, your body is struggling to regulate your cortisol, you know, fall in the in the evening, having that melatonin to sort of balance that out is really helpful for you in, in that sleep onset. Mm, definitely yeah and I guess final thing just to say that is make sure you chat with your doctor about it if you think that this is something that you want to try um don't just buy a dodgy melatonin pill online Okay, so we've talked about the biological side to issues with sleep, but there is actually, you know, a massive component, which is the behavioral side, which is what are you doing um, in terms of your sleep routine, how you prepare for sleep, um, your thoughts uh, and and anxiety about sleep, um, how you set up your bedroom. So psychologists will often, you know, mention sleep hygiene. And what they mean by that is not brushing your teeth or having a shower, um, but really what are the things you're doing to try to ensure that you are, have the best chance of having a decent night's sleep? Yeah, so sleep hygiene is basically all the things that set you up for a clean entry to sleep is how I I like to think about it. Um, So some of those things would include looking at how much caffeine intake you're having. So for a lot of people on the autism spectrum, um, they might be sensitive to the overstimulation that comes from consuming too much caffeine. And 
just being mindful of um, like when you're having caffeine, such as not having it too late in the afternoon because it can make you feel more wakeful or jittery later at night time when you're trying to promote those feelings of relaxation and sleepiness. Yeah, for sure. And alcohol, I know, is another really big one there. And it's often counterintuitive because a lot of times people will drink alcohol to fall asleep because, as we know, alcohol is a depressant, right? Mm. It has a sedating effect. A lot of times when people do use alcohol to fall asleep, it can often be as almost like a self-medication for stress, anxiety. Um, I'm so hyped up. My cortisol levels are really high. I'm hyper aroused. I'm overwhelmed. I've had a terrible day. I feel emotional. I feel anxious. I'm going to have some wine or some alcohol. And in the moment, it definitely works, right? You definitely feel less aroused because it is a sedator. Um, But what we know actually happens with alcohol is rather than actually promoting you falling into a good sleep cycle, going through all those sleep stages that we talked about before, light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, it basically just knocks you out. And a lot of people have had the experience, right, where you might be drunk when you fall asleep and you fall asleep really easily. You basically just passed out, knocked out, and then you wake up when your body has metabolized that alcohol and you have a headache and it's the middle of the night and then you've got to get back to sleep. So alcohol is not actually helping you sleep. It's sedating you. And we know that when we drink alcohol before you go to sleep, you're much less likely to have good REM sleep. You're much less likely to have good deep sleep. It's really interesting, actually. I know for me, um, I started wearing a Fitbit like as of last year. And one of the reasons I got it was I wanted to look at my sleep cycles. I wanted to see what was going on. And I've noticed that even if I only have one glass of wine um, in, you know, the few hours before I go to bed, it takes about half the night for my heart rate to drop to my resting heart rate. And that's because my body is working really, really hard to metabolize that alcohol. And so it was a really interesting visual just to see like what actually in my body is going on when I drink alcohol. Yeah, and another part of sleep hygiene really is your environment um, of where you're trying to sleep. So setting up your environment for the best chance of having a good night's sleep is important, especially if you have sensory differences um, and you really need to find that right level of sensory stimulation to enable you to get to sleep. So, for example, having a really comfortable mattress or a bed that's helping support your back Um, making sure your sheets are the right texture. Um, Like I personally have to smooth out all of the wrinkles from the sheets because I can feel them and they annoy me and I can't get to sleep if the, you know, the sheets aren't smooth and there's bits in them. So, yeah. (laughs) I love that. Um, I'm glad I'm not married to you, but I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a tosser and turner. (laughs) It's interesting when we talk about, uh, you know, making sure the sensory environment is right for us. Again, thinking about that difference between or that line between overstimulation versus understimulation. And I know for a lot of ADHDers, falling asleep with no stimulation is actually very challenging to do because it's sort of like what you were saying at the start today, Monique, where uh, surprisingly your ADHD doesn't turn off when you decide it's time to go to sleep. Um, It stays very much on. 
So lying in bed with nothing to direct your focus for a lot of ADHD is just leads to racing thoughts. And sometimes these are anxiety thoughts, worry thoughts, and sometimes they're just a whole litany of interesting sounds, noises, facts, you know, words, whatever. So I found for a lot of ADHD is actually listening to an audiobook and particularly one where you're very familiar with the story, which means that you're not kind of needing to focus because you're not super excited about what's going to happen, but it's a soothing voice that you can direct your attention and energy on and you can just fall asleep with that playing. Um, And that means, you know, there's no screens involved. It's just something that you can press play on um, and fall asleep listening to the sound of that. Um, Similarly, you know, music, uh, particularly music that doesn't have lyrics um, or even just a noisy fan can sometimes be really helpful. So anything that is stimulating you to the point where you don't feel understimulated, but obviously not so much stimulation that it's then kind of waking you up and making you feel alert. Yeah, absolutely. Like I remember last year when I created the ADHD petition, um, I was so um, obsessed with this petition and it was very exciting. Um, Still going, by the way, but um, I would literally just have this chant in my head over and over of like ADHD, ADHD, ADHD. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like at night trying to go to sleep and I'm just saying ADHD, ADHD (laughs) going through my my head. (laughs) (laughs) I was like to my brain, I'm like, I know you're very excited, but you know, we need to sleep. (laughs) Oh my God, Monique, that is amazing modeling of compassionate parenting just Mm. there. (laughs) Love the reparenting of yourself. Um, But yeah, you know, I think, you know, we were having a laugh about it, but I think that's a really good point, actually, that being compassionate to those quirks, those things that go on, those things that make you who you are is really important, you know, and this goes back to that really complex interplay between many factors that can impact sleep that, you know, if you had a different approach to that, if you were like, oh my God, Monique, stop chanting ADHD in your head, that probably would have made it even harder to move past that and would have worked you up even more and would have made it even more difficult to go to sleep. But because you were able to be like, okay, I know that you're very excited about this. It's okay to be excited. Right now is not the time to be singing ADHD over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I bet that that worked a lot better than being harsh with yourself or stern Mm. with yourself would have been. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that takes us to actually a point that I wanted to bring up about part of Uh, being neurodivergent is that you might have these intense interests um, that you do find very exciting and stimulating. And Mm. um, at nighttime, it's about really trying to plan activities that, again, provide that right amount of stimulation um, to help scaffold your nervous system down towards being soothed or relaxed. Because, yeah, if, if I'm up at night, which is when I do some of my best thinking and work, but I'm really engaged in something I'm very passionate about, I will find that I am very, um, you know, excited and can't get to sleep. So mm-hmm. it's about just timing some of those things or turning to like an interest like reading that's a yeah. bit more low key. I really love what you said there about scaffolding yourself down to sleep um, through activities. So, 
for example, if you are really into art, right, it might be that you don't start a painting at 9 p.m. at night. It might be that you just get out some pencils and just do a bit of a sketch, right? Um, you know, thinking about, okay, what's some lower stimulation versions of the activities that I'm interested in or the things that I'm passionate about that can enable me to step down into sleep, yeah, because I think one of the things with sleep and neurodiversity is that sleep is boring. Like, I don't know about you, but it's it's like I've got a million things I would rather do than go to sleep. And it's kind of like a chore almost, even though I know it's part of self-care and like it's, it is an essential component. There has been times where I wish that I didn't need to sleep because of so many things I want to do and learn. And I've wished that there were three of me that we could take in like shifts just to like get everything done that I want to do. That's really interesting. Um, for me, I absolutely love sleep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would sleep like 12 hours a day if I could. Um, but, you know, I think that's a really great point. I love there, Monique, that you were talking about sleep as part of self-care. And one of my kind of soapbox issues is self-care is boring. Self-care is not all, you know, mud masks and baths and doing fun things. Self-care is just car maintenance. And I think, you know, when we think about something like sleep, even if it is a boring task, as this is necessary to maintain the, you know, flesh sack that is my body, <laughs> um, you know, we see it as what it really is, which is self-care. Yeah, something else um, that, often helps people with sleep, especially if they are sensory sensitive, is uh, things like wearing earplugs. If you're mm -hmm. sensitive to noise, um, wearing an eye mask, if you're sensitive to light and having a dark environment, um, if that works for you. Um, some people have aromatherapy going and they use that every night as part of a routine to help cue their body into that state of relaxation. Mm. Um, and sometimes really having that bedtime ritual or routine can help you kind of cue down into that state of relaxation. Um, also having, you know, a wet blanket for some people works, um, to give them that sensory feedback and also having a cool room. Yeah, a cool, yeah, cool room is really, really important. I think that we don't think about the impact of temperature and heat as much as we should because when we sleep, actually our body is not as good as when we're awake at regulating temperature. So setting up the room and the environment in a cool state is really important to that sleep maintenance uh, and can actually prevent um, unnecessary sleep waking through the night. So just a couple of other things to mention when we think about our sleep hygiene, so getting our body ready for entry to sleep. Um, this is something that obviously everyone has heard a million times, but screens really do play a big part on our body's readiness for sleep and our wakefulness. So we were talking earlier about melatonin secretion. The reason that screens can impact our sleep is because they basically are emitting a blue light, which is the same sort of wavelength as natural sunlight. So that's sending the signal through our eyeballs to our brain that actually, no, it's daytime, which impairs our melatonin secretion. So lots of people, when I tell this to them, say, well, actually, I get sleepy 
when I watch screens at night. And you might absolutely get sleepy. It's not saying that you're not going to be able to fall asleep. But what it does mean is that it will take you longer to actually drop into a deep sleep, into a restorative sleep. You're going to be in a light sleep phase for longer if you are using screens heavily before bedtime because your body is hasn't kind of stored up or your brain hasn't stored up as much melatonin as it would have if you weren't submitting it to, you know, this sort of blue light. And there are some apps that you can download on your phone or computer that actually change the light from the screen to a yellow light rather mm. than the blue light. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, I think if all else fails, definitely downloading some of those apps so that you are not getting that same blue light input because, you know, I get it. It's it's sometimes the thing that you want to do is watch an episode of your show or you want to scroll TikTok or, you know, you want to do something like that. And I think for coping strategies or, or strategies that we use in our day-to-day life that we know are sort of quote-unquote unhealthy or bad, right, it's not helpful to think of them as such. They're just strategies. And so as much as we can kind of mitigate the impact, the negative impact that they might be having, I think that's better and more practical than saying don't do it at all because it's really hard to cut something out. Last thing that I just wanted to flag is exercise. So this is particularly important for ADHDers. There's been a number of studies and a number of research projects that have looked at the impact of exercise on ADHDers, including their overall regulation and also their sleep. So we know that for everyone, exercise is helpful in sleep onset, but particularly so for ADHDers. So if you're an ADHDer and you're struggling with your sleep onset, trying to introduce just a short amount of exercise into your day uh, might make a big difference. And one thing with exercise is generally if you do it quite late at night, that can actually interfere with your sleep. So doing it at some point in the day or afternoon is generally better. Yeah. I think a good question to answer is, okay, I'm having issues with my sleep. It's causing me some distress. It's causing me, you know, some impairment in what I want to do and how I want to spend my time. So what do I do then? So the first step really is to go and talk to your GP about it, your doctor, um, and maybe get a referral to a psychologist or a psychiatrist that specializes in sleep. There are psychologists that specialize in different um, treatments that specialize in insomnia. There are psychiatrists that specialize in things like medication options. Um, And then some people will get referred to a specialist sleeping clinic, um, normally through the public health system, um, where you might do some tests where you go in and sleep there overnight while your brainwaves are measured um, and you're assessed for like what's going on, including like potentially like a sleep apnea test as well. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. 
We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.